Good morning, Mars Hill family. I'm Shauna, and I am reading from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, our teaching text this morning from the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 18 to 27. Please feel free to read along if you'd like. If the world hates you, be aware that it hated me before it hated you. If you belonged to the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, servants are not greater than their master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. It was to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who comes from the Father, he will testify on my behalf. You also are to testify because you have been with me from the beginning. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Shauna. Um, well, friends and friends of the Lord be with you. My name is Troy, and I'm really thrilled to work here and to serve as one of our associate pastors. Um, three weeks ago, I had a wisdom tooth pulled. Actually, I should probably say I had a wisdom tooth cut out because they couldn't pull it. Um, the, my dentist noticed a gap back here um, where my gums were being pulled away from my jaw and x-rays, they showed a wisdom tooth that was lying sideways, likely causing the problem. So they set up a consultation for me at the oral surgeon. And when I went to that consultation, uh, the first thing they had me do was watch a 20 or 25 minute video. And it was all basically full of the risks and possible side effects of this oral surgery. It outlined the the low percentage likelihood of permanent numbness and slurred speech. I could even die. Um, it was a video, I think, certainly meant to cover all the legal bases for this practice, but I saw it as a way for the patient to discern whether or not this procedure would be worth it. Um, it, was, it was a whole lot better than a surgery I had on my wrist a couple of, uh, about, I, goodness, at this point, a couple of dozen years ago or so. I broke my wrist in a soccer game. Kyle Lake was there. And um, when I went in uh, to get this taken care of, the surgeon at that point said, oh yeah, we're just going to get in there and put it all back together. Like my wrist was Humpty Dumpty or something. I, so I, I really appreciated the video at the oral surgeon's office. And in fact, it turns out that the recovery from this wisdom tooth being pulled, it hasn't been great. I, in fact, I had to go back again and uh, see the doctor and I had to get an antibiotic. I've had a, some 
infection and swelling. So yeah, it hasn't been sitting around eating ice cream all the time as a recovery. But I think back to that opening video and I'm actually really grateful for it. Um, As we look at this next section that Shauna read for us here in the Gospel of John, I can't help but wonder if these words of Jesus would be better if they were at the beginning of the book. Because these verses, they're a warning to us. They're a warning that probably should be moved closer to the come and follow me invitation. These are these really stark words from Jesus. If I was running Jesus' marketing campaign, I would probably recommend that he relocates this warning about the hatred of the world much earlier. Because it's helpful information to know that being a disciple means that you're likely going to encounter intense emotions and opinions and reactions, that you'll likely be misunderstood and misrepresented. I would want to know about the risk of persecution. We've been focusing these past couple of weeks on some of the most loved words of Jesus in the Bible. In fact, just a few verses before this one, um, in chapter 15, Jesus says, as the Father loved me, so have I loved you. And then today, we move from these comforting words about Jesus' love for his disciples to these ominous words about the world's hatred for them. It's probably really good to remember that when John is writing his gospel, by this time, the hatred for Christians was already being realized. Persecution by the Romans was real. And the expulsion of Jewish Christians from the synagogues was already happening. And so while John has Jesus predicting and pointing to the future, the original hearers of these words they would likely already be experiencing them as words coming true. Maybe you already know this, but the reputation of early Christians held by the wider culture was mixed. Here, I'm just gonna give a few examples. These were examples of the negative opinions that we find in historical documents and writings from this period. First, Christians, they were considered bad citizens because they wouldn't pledge allegiance to Caesar. They wouldn't participate in the ritual acts that professed that Caesar is Lord. And so they were branded, Christians, as disloyal and dangerous. Many suspected that Christians were cannibals. It was told that these Christians, they had private meals in their secret meeting places where they ate flesh, and they drank blood every time they met together. Christians were also accused of being sexually promiscuous. How else could you explain what they called love feasts? Men and women of all ages gathered together in these secret places. And what about all that holy kissing? They were labeled a kind of doomsday disciple or prophets because they were always talking about how the end of the world was near. They talked about the second coming of the Messiah. And they were also seen as anti-family because families were being divided because of this religious sect. 
Marriages sometimes ended. Homes were split up. Siblings and parents complained about being disregarded all in the name of this guy called Jesus. Now, we can find ways to defend and even dismiss these perspectives. But I think it's instructive for us to see and to realize that in every age, the first century and in our own age, that the wider culture interprets the way of Christ according to its values and its acceptable practices. So the hatred of the wider culture and the world for the people and for the things of God is never generic. It's always aimed at the specific ways that Christians have lived out their faith. The hatred is a response to the ways that ordinary disciples of Jesus have sought to obey his commands. As these words would have fallen on the ears of the original audience, they would have probably had this sense of affirmation. What they were going through was exactly what Jesus said would happen. These particular ways that they sought to embody the teachings of Jesus, those were the very things that prompted these perspectives and these attitudes from the wider culture. These were believers who fit the description that we find in 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter wrote this, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. And living that way gets a reaction out of the culture. This is how Peter describes that reaction just two verses later. They, the wider culture, they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. There it is. Abuse or hatred, all as a result of very specific life choices. Earlier in this letter, Peter describes followers of Jesus, I think in a really helpful way. In chapter two, verse nine, words you're probably familiar with. He says this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. But here is a time when I really miss the poetic sensibilities of the good old King James version. In that translation, this is how followers of Jesus are described a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Now that's a really helpful phrase. No wonder the wider culture stands back with crossed arms and furrowed brows because the followers of the way are peculiar. A few years ago, I read a book that really stretched my thinking about the ways that Christians throughout history have engaged the wider culture. Andrew Walls is a Scottish missiologist. Basically, that means that he's, he studies the gospel and the church and culture. And his book, it sketches out this helpful framework for how Christians have negotiated their relationship with the wider culture, a culture in which they are peculiar and a culture in which they are often hated. 
Now this is gonna be a really broad brush overview, uh, but Walls proposes two principles that define Christian cultural engagement historically. And he calls his first principle the indigenizing principle. And this approach looks like this. Christianity enters a culture and it finds certain expressions there and it discovers understandings and customs that are already present in that culture that actually embody the way of Jesus. And so Christians, they celebrate this aspect of that culture. They affirm it. They participate as part of the citizenry. And in this principle, Christians are largely at home in that culture. We could say that they're fairly comfortable residents. And then he calls his second principle the pilgrim principle. And in this paradigm, Christianity enters a culture and it finds ways in which that culture contradicts the way and the teachings of Jesus. And when that happens, then Christianity critiques the culture. And Christianity, it seeks to embody alternatives that challenge that wider culture. Not only that, but Christianity then invites the culture toward a way of life in which injustice and violence and oppression can be overcome. In this pilgrim principle, Christians are not fully at home in the wider culture. They would be more accurately described as he calls resident aliens. We might say they're peculiar people in the culture. Now, one of the things that I find so helpful about this paradigm is that it acknowledges that both of these principles, they're at play for the follower of Jesus all of the time. There is this creative tension as we negotiate our relationship with the wider culture. We need the rage all the time about how broken and evil the world is, but we also don't simply acquiesce and go along with everything that we encounter. As it relates to, this, to the text today, it's the left side of the slide, the pilgrim principle. This is what stokes the fires and incites the hatred of the world. Because that critique and that call to another way, it's frankly never well received. The world hated Jesus, not simply because he lived a peculiar lifestyle, but because he critiqued the wider culture whenever it contradicted the ways of God. And so whenever we as his disciples follow that example, then we share in the sufferings of Christ by way of receiving the hatred of the world. I wanna bring this close to home. When I consider these principles and when I think about the example of early Christians and when I read these words of Jesus in John 15, there's one big question that rises to the surface for me. How might Mars Hill Bible Church embrace our status as resident aliens and by doing that ensure that we don't just drift into being fully at home in the wider culture and then fail 
to be faithful to our vision and mission? Maybe simply, how do we live as a peculiar people? Being faithful to our particular purposes as a local church while we embrace the risk of bearing the world's hatred. So I want to submit three ways. Three ways that we can be true to our vision and our mission while at the same time offering up a cultural critique. So first, undivided loyalty. Undivided loyalty to Christ. In the first century Roman culture, it was common practice for people to pay lip service to Caesar while at the same time participating in a whole range of different religious practices. In fact, the majority of people would have cobbled together an assortment of rituals from a wide range of religions, practices that were the least um, offensive to the surrounding culture, but that also were the most personally beneficial. And the wider culture, it didn't have any issue with it because the Roman culture was tolerant. But the early Christians, they were offensive to the wider culture because they refused to acknowledge anyone but Jesus as Lord. And hear me, any time that Caesar is dethroned, hatred will be sparked. It's always been true, and it remains true to this very day, that exclusivity is offensive to the wider culture. Centralizing Jesus and Jesus alone as Lord will make people angry. And if Mars Hill pursues undivided loyalty to Christ as Lord, faithfully prioritizing Jesus, not simply as the first word of our vision statement, but as the first and final word, the word made flesh on every matter. If we do that, then we will be critiquing every cultural impulse that shouts out something else. The cultural impulse that shouts America is Lord, or health and wellness is Lord, or democracy is Lord, or faster internet is Lord, or religious freedom is Lord, or stock from GameStop is Lord, or my right to privacy is Lord, or self-improvement and advancement is Lord, or anything else that we elevate and give inappropriate influence and allegiance. Jesus warned that the world would hate his followers because of his name, the divine name that he shares with the Father, Lord over all creation. Our undivided loyalty to Christ will speak loudly to the wider culture. If we embody and not just sing thou and thou only the first in my heart, if we do this, we will likely suffer hatred and persecution because of it. Second, 
disciplined discourse. There's so much that we could say about this. And I already spent some time back in our Steadfast series when I talked a bit about the book of James. So if you want to loop back uh, and check out that teaching. But what feels important here for us today is to emphasize that early Christians, they committed to living the way of Jesus, not simply talking about it. Alan Crider, he did a lot of really great work on early Christianity. And in his book, The Patient Ferment, he wrote this. The early Christians, they thought their way of life was important. For lifestyle is not only a product of belief, it is a display of what people truly believe. And that might be no more significant in our day and age than the way that we have conversations with one another and with the wider culture. What is our discourse like? Is it disciplined? Is it measured? Is it well considered? Are we known for both convicted and kind conversation? Author and Professor David Fitch, he once wrote that the world runs on antagonism. We can save that slide here, Scott. The world runs on antagonism. And he wrote these words back in 2016. Feels like a prophetic statement. Take a peek at just about any random tweet thread or comment section or Reddit discussion board or group text and you will likely find multiple attempts at humiliating someone for their opinion or even just their word choices. We live in a time when public discourse is fueled by the hot take and the more incendiary and flammable, the better. These days, when so many seem to have the goal of shutting someone else down, of eliminating the other perspective, ideally seeing someone leave the conversation in shame, protecting one's position at all costs, looking for another battle won in this large verbal war. Quick example. Anyone who knows my wife, Elizabeth, knows that she loves every single member of the animal kingdom. Well, except for sea lampreys. Otherwise, every single member of the animal kingdom she loves. And she has a particular soft spot for the house cat. And we've had two cats since being married. And uh, we reached a tough decision a couple months ago since our daughter was born. Uh, seven months tomorrow, by the way. Um, since our daughter is born, the, our time and our energies, they, they've shifted. And these cats, they simply haven't been getting the care and the attention that they needed. So some local friends, they rehoused one of the cats, and then we were looking for a solution for the other cat. And Liz found this service that sought to rehouse older cats with older people. And so she jumped into this Facebook group and she started to interact with some of the people on there and she was explaining our need to find an alternative solution for this 10-year-old cat. And it didn't take long, forgive the pun, for the claws to come out. 
Because people were furious with her. I've used this language before, but it was like Liz stepped into a comment section that was like a tinderbox. It was just waiting for a small little spark before the whole thing would be in flames. One person's entire comment to Liz was, you are terrible. Another person said, you are what is wrong with the world. For wanting to find a new home for a cat. Our culture seems addicted to stirring the pot, to taking the bait, to winding up and wildly throwing punches, unconcerned about where they land. Here's the entire quote from David Fitch. The world runs on antagonism. It's always easier to stir up a crowd to hate an object or a group we are against than to gather both sides in one place to be present to each other. To be for the sake of the world. It means to build something not to be on the lookout for the next thing or the next person to tear down. If we are going to be a peculiar people in this current moment, it will require thoughtful and disciplined interaction with our culture and with the people who make up that culture. And then finally, a a brief word on radical inclusion. The early Christians, they puzzled the Roman culture because they didn't fit neatly into categories. In addition to the examples that I mentioned before about their negative reputation, they were also really good workers and they cared for the poor sacrificially and they exercised patience in the face of persecution and even martyrdom. So the wider culture, they didn't know what to do with these people, these peculiar people. Because the world likes well-defined categories. It wants to bring together the like-minded and the like-skinned and the like-convicted and the like-moneyed and the like educated, and on and on and on. But the body of Christ, it's meant to prefigure the vision from Revelation chapter seven. A great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, from all tribes and all people, in all languages standing before the throne of God. And yet, the impulses of the world to categorize and lump together, these impulses are so sneaky And they find their way even into the best-intentioned people and churches. It's startling 
to face that in both the UK and the US, more than 85% of all congregations are made up of people of the same race. And most of the time, people of the same social status. It emphasizes the inside of Martin Luther King Jr. that Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. But at Mars Hill, we want to be a people. And this is bigger. This value is bigger than our alikeness. The conviction that has emerged over these past few years to seek racial reconciliation and to pursue a new expression of our church that will prioritize a multiracial and multicultural focus, that impulse in and of itself is a cultural critique. Because we have a different perspective about people because of the love of God in Christ. We are not defined Church, we are not defined by the vertical values of the wider society. Rather, the body of Christ is horizontal in its solidarity and in its inclusiveness. We got a really encouraging email this past week from one of our attenders, a man who's been joining us entirely online for a while. Doug from Yorkshire in the UK, he wrote this to us. In a world where we are increasingly being taught to spot differences in each other and then to hate those differences, the message of the inclusive love of Jesus is revolutionary. I am learning so much from the way you, Mars Hill, are engaging with these topics. Thank you and bless you, Doug. Our culture likes patterns and labels and to be able to pigeonhole people into easily categorized and separated chunks. As we, Marcel, seek to be a people, we run the risk of being suspicious, peculiar in our nonconformity, in our radical inclusiveness. The last two verses of this section of John 15, they should offer us great hope in light of the likelihood of our encountering the world's hatred because it reminds us that we will not be alone. That Jesus gives the promise of the Spirit. He promises the advocate, the helper. The presence of Jesus is extended to us through the Holy Spirit given by the Father. And there we see the Trinity represented, the supreme example of a pure, self-giving relationship. This spirit that's promised to us by Jesus, the spirit reminds us of the promises of Jesus. In John 14, we're told that the Spirit will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Words of comfort and strength and encouragement. The Spirit also empowers the followers of Jesus to testify as well. 
to interact with the wider culture, to speak truth while bearing the burden of the world's hatred. So as we close, remember these words from Jesus in the other Gospels and receive the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 10, at that time you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Mark chapter 13, say whatever is given you at that time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. And Luke 12, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. As Dale Bruner so beautifully wrote, the Spirit is given to us as a gift a gift to a hated church from a loving Lord and a devoted Father. And through our faithful, undivided loyalty to Jesus as Lord, as King, through our inclusive commitment to the other, and through our disciplined conversation with and in the wider culture, we join the Spirit in testifying about the love of God in Christ. May it be so. So let's pray together. Let's pray what we sang at the start of the service. God, would you be our vision? Would you be our inheritance? Not the world's empty praise. Not the world's hatred for you and hatred for us as your followers. Be the first in our hearts. Be our treasure. Be our best thought by day and by night. And may your presence be our light. O ruler of all. And amen.